Tonight we're going to be in chapter 18, uh, verses 21 to 35. What I want to do tonight first is we're just going to read through those verses again. So we're just going to read through those verses. I have just a couple things to say at the end of it, and then we're going to hit where we are. But um, I was definitely reminded, even just listening to that CD, how fruitful I think this series is. Um, we've had some great conversations. So I, I do want to start us with prayer uh, tonight, and then we'll begin doing this because, yeah, it, it really is. It's pretty amazing. It's like an audio commentary. You know, I mean, it really is amazing to go back and listen. So I don't know if you've listened to some of the Matthew series of late. I'd really highly recommend that as well because it, it's pretty enriching. Um, so let us pray, and then we'll, we'll move on with tonight. Uh, God, we do thank you for your scriptures. Um, God, we thank you for the testimony of those who, some of them lived with you and, and watched you. Um, and we're close to you. And God, so we are very thankful for uh, those stories and the things you said. Um, God, we pray that you would bless us, that you would teach us tonight, God, and that you would convict us. There's very strong words tonight, and so we thank you for who you are and pray that uh, fruit would be produced because of them. And pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, like I said, I'm just going to read through these verses to catch us up. So Matthew chapter 8, verse one, 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye then have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth. He is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. The couple points that I do want to just kind of catch us up with so that it will make better sense tonight as well. First of all, there is a theme here of the serious nature of sin, right? Where Jesus is using what we surely agreed upon and what most people throughout Christian have agreed upon, that idea of you know, gouging out your eye or cutting off a hand or a foot. 
Nobody really takes that seriously because otherwise we'd all be walking around blind without hands and feet, right? But he clearly is making that point of rooting out sin, working very hard to say, if these things are causing me to sin, what do I do to stop them? What do I do to take this seriously because it destroys us? We also talked about what do the little ones mean. It's not just children, right? It's the disciples. It's those who are in faith trying to follow Christ. Okay, so it's a much broader uh, term than, than we might think. Third of all, there's a big point that this is dealing a lot of with, with other disciples, right? When it talks about the correction of, you know, go to your brother um, or take witnesses, those things. That seems to be directed towards disciples, okay? It seems to be talking about discipline in the church. Um, and so those points are very important for what we are coming to tonight. Okay, um, so let's move on tonight. because and, and the previous section we may have to come back to as well with going to your brother and the idea of sin. Because it seems like that those statements by Jesus um, prompt Peter to ask this question. And it ties in well because he's talking about sin. How do you treat sin? So let me read through this statement and the whole parable. And we are going to come back and break it down. I feel like you need to hear the parable in a whole instead of hearing a couple verses and then talking about hearing a couple. Like, we're going to do that, but let's get through the whole thing and then come back. Verse 21, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. So Jesus ends that parable with an amazing pronouncement and very challenging to us. This parable has been really fascinating to study and to think about. So we're going to come back. Let's open up with Peter's question here. Okay, we're going to kind of, now we're going to start working through this because it's fascinating because obviously Jesus is going to illustrate his statement here with the parable. So both of them go hand in hand. So this statement, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Now, First, there's a parallel passage up here. We'll read that as well in just a second. I just want to have just a couple comments. So at this time, something interesting is that the rabbis, this idea of how many times do you forgive somebody, right? That's a pertinent question. And the rabbis had basically said up to three times, right? Somebody keeps wronging you two, three times, that's, that's good forgiveness, right? 
So Peter, by even suggesting seven times, he's elevating that, right? He does seem to understand Jesus' teachings of forgiveness. And, you know, this has been said. We've seen this in the book of Matthew quite a few times. Jesus taught on forgiveness quite often. Okay, so Peter seems to have some sense, but Jesus totally blows that up. <laughs> he completely elevates it and says, no, not seven times, but 77 times, right? Peter has asked the wrong question. He's asking, is there a limit to forgiveness? And Jesus is basically saying, no. No, there isn't. Um, it's extremely large. And so a parallel passage is in Luke 17, 1 through 4, and it's slightly different. Um, we're not going to get into too much of it. We'll talk a little bit. So that one says Luke 17, verses 1 through 4. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to sin are bound to come. But woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourself, right? That reminds us of what we just previously read in Matthew. Then he says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. Right? So we have this, Peter is the one asking about this seven times. And then yet Jesus here is saying seven times in a day. Um, seven does have that idea of that wholeness or completion. Um, and I think, I, what, I don't want to get into too much as well, why is Jesus saying 77 times here and then he's saying seven here? The reason I think both of them are rather arbitrary in the sense of I think we miss the point if we're trying to calculate how many times you forgive. That I think is the fault that Peter makes and I think it's the fault that we might make if we're, if we're going to bicker about, well, is it seven times seven? Is it 77 times? Uh, sometimes they say seven sevenfolds, like as in 449 times, like 70 times seven, right? So people, you know, they'll, they'll debate those things, but that's the whole point you're missing is, so is he saying that on the 491st time you shouldn't forgive? No, he's not saying that. So that's something we shouldn't get, yeah, too bogged down about. Yeah. What do you think is the relation between this complete forgiveness and um, like verses 15 through 18 where he's talking about when you should kind of excommunicate somebody who continually does the same thing and does the lesson? Yeah, that's a great connection. Um, I want to answer that in a moment. That's a great question um, because I think there's a very, very important difference, and we'll get there. I, I want to pose a couple questions, and we will get to that because it's, it's really important. Um, one more thing I just want to say about this passage with the seven times or the 77 times. A lot of commentators really pull this back to Genesis 4 where Lamech says, if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. And the connection there is this idea of this uh, revenge, right? Like Lamech wants this revenge. If anyone does anything to me, they will get it paid back on them 77 times. Where Jesus is really showing that different way of forgiveness. Like we're not, Christians are not supposed to be basically driven by this idea of like, how do I get my revenge? How many times do I, you know, if somebody wrongs me, how do I wrong them back? Or that sort of thing. Like he's showing a totally different system here that, that is also very important in this discussion. So with Jill's statement, I want to pose two questions that I think we need to wrestle over. And this is why it will tie back into the previous statement. We'll get to that. But I want us to kind of wrestle with it instead of me just saying things. Um, so first, is does Jesus' teaching here deal only with believers? Or does it also deal with how we should treat unbelievers? The statement of forgiveness, right? Because Jesus seems to be saying, you have no limit of forgiveness. Okay? There, there, there is no limit. So does that apply both to believers and unbelievers or only believers? So that's the first question I want us to talk about. And second, I'll pose them both and then we'll discuss. Second is, is repentance a necessary element to the unlimited forgiveness that Jesus teaches? 
is repentance necessary to receive this type of unlimited forgiveness? So this is Exodus. We need to hear from you guys. <laughs> so why don't we either answer either question. Um, they're both very important to, to how we apply this passage, to how we understand it. Yeah. Do you know the sense in which he uses the word my brother? Because Matthew uses brother to mean sometimes the disciples, mm -hmm. and other times it's meant like a, you know, like a relation brother. Do you know when, he, when Peter's asking how many times shall I forgive my brother, what, what, like how that relates there? I would say the difficult part, because I mean brother in, in Greek is adolphos, and so the problem is you have to figure that out by the context. Like, I don't think there's a Christian brother type of statement or a brother, so everyone has to sit there and go, that's why this question I, I think is so uh, relevant, because it's like, well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, Jeremy. In the NRSV, it's translated, uh, how many times shall I forgive a member of the church? It actually, it actually sets that, that idea that, that Peter's asked. But that's, that would be a funny thing for Peter to ask, because there was no church at the time when Peter was asking it, so I think the difficulty in addressing this is with the Gospel of Matthew, whenever it was written, it was written at such a time that it's, it's talking a lot about churchy things, like structure, like it, it brings up the structure of church, it brings up these kinds of issues, which like it would be a very strange thing for Peter to ask before the resurrection or before crucifixion, you know, how many times should, should I forgive a member of the church? I mean, I would think that the better thing to do would be to forgive everyone, regardless of their status, of whether they're a member of the church or not, I think that that, that would be just a better way to live. Okay. Um, so you would say this is informative for both, for all relationships with people, to, regardless of, of faith and status? Yeah, I think I agree with Jeremy, though, but like, to answer it, I need to have this other one answered, is to figure out, well, if this was just applying to believers, would there be the difference of like, well, if you have believers for an unlimited amount, but non-believers we only forgive a limited amount. Because I feel like at the very least Jesus forgives everyone to some degree. Like even on the cross, like he's forgiving the people who are like killing him. And you know, like there's at least some degree of like they're not believers at that point. And so I think there's at least some degree of forgiveness generally, and I agree with Jeremy that it seems like a better way to live how Jesus did live, but it's just whether there's a difference between an unlimited amount and a limited amount that applies to non-believers that if that exists somehow, which I don't know it does, then I could see a distinction. But otherwise, it seems it applies to everybody. Yeah, Joe. Here's my thoughts on this. Um, I think that in this verse, it would make sense that Jesus is talking about, well, you should forgive anybody who asks it of you. Because he's talking about somebody sitting against you. Um, but it seems like the difference in these responses could be up here when he's talking about if your brother sins and it's in the context of someone doing something wrong within the church. So if you see that and it's poisoning the atmosphere or it's causing others to stumble because that's really what this is all about is leading others into sin or doing things that are unhealthy for the community. So I think that is kind of a way it makes sense that there's a difference. My opinion and, and what I've seen is, is I feel like this is first and foremost normative for the church. And yet, I completely agree with Jeremy and Phil, like this idea of like you would only forgive brothers and not forgive it would be utterly ridiculous. And Jesus does show this general, a high level of general forgiveness for all people regardless of race, faith, you know, gender, any, anything like that. So I do agree, but I do think this is normative. 
I think in the context, and that's why I wanted to read those previous verses, I think this is specifically talking about how Christians are supposed to relate to other Christians. How about that second question? Is repentance necessary element to forgiveness? Because Jill also brought that when she said that, yeah, when someone comes to you and, and you, are, you are to forget, like, that's dead on. You know, but does someone need to come forward before this type of unlimited forgiveness is given? Do we see that as a necessary element? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think to make things right so that you can be forgiven, you need to repent, obviously. But as far as us kind of giving forgiveness to others, no, they don't need to be repentant for that. Like Christ was hanging on the cross, and he said, forgive them for they know not what they do. People were killing them, they weren't asking for forgiveness, and he was still forgiving them. So I think that, I think we're supposed to forgive people. If someone wrongs you, I just think it's not good to harbor resentment. I think even if they don't come to you and apologize, you should but do you talk to them about it? I guess that depends on the situation. But I don't think it's like required. I think we're still supposed to try to strive for that, even though it makes it more difficult. Yeah, because I mean, I do think this is interpersonal relations. I think that's what Peter's discussing. That sort of idea, like if there's sin, um, you know, does repentance need to happen for forgiveness to be real? Um, I think kind of addressing the question of the forgiver repenting, I think that, like Jeremy said, that we often skip over the repentance part. And I think even if, if I'm saying I'm forgiving you for something, you come to me and say, I'm sorry, I wronged you. I think also in the process, I think to complete the process holistically, I have to say, you know what, I'm letting go of that, I forgive you. And that's, I guess, my repentance, saying, God, you know, please help me to let go of those things so that I don't hold on to them and harbor them even more, so that I can truly forgive. I, I mean, I don't know, at least the way you're saying it, that's kind of John? I think there's a distinction between like the repentance we need to have when God forgives us versus the repentance that somebody else needs to have when we forgive them because God cannot be wrong and is not wronging us right so when we're seeking his forgiveness like we're trying to turn around and change our ways um, I think it's a necessary discipline for us and a necessary part but if you're strictly talking about does someone else need to repent in order for us to forgive them I see forgiveness as the release of our entitlement to feel like you don't have the right to sin against me when in actuality we sin against others and others sin against us and I think a great part of what Jesus was trying to teach was this idea of like give up that sense of entitlement where you're all equally fallen and you should not harbor this kind of grudge or this kind of debt that the person has release it you know like let it go so you can forgive someone and release that we often are jumping to restoration. That's what we're thinking about when we're talking about forgiveness. We're trying to think, how does it go from me? This forgiving, I mean, I have to restore wholly that full relationship. That would be ideal. But forgiveness, in my mind, is really about releasing that person and the debt they have or that you think you have. Did you have something? I actually, like what AJ was saying, is that it's a more holistic approach when you're talking about like forgiving someone. You're also talking about engaging in a very deep level about the thing that requires forgiveness and that not only requires repentance in the part that you're seeking or that you want to forgive but in some some cases it also requires a type of repentance on your part as well that it's not one or the other that you know that it's just forgiveness and you don't need repentance i i, I think actually you uh, as a healthy way to live it makes sense to talk about doing both but that's an ideal. Like, if the person that has wronged you refuses to repent, does that mean that you should not forgive them? 
sure it might be an ideal, but we don't even think about it. That, that's my point. Is that like we're too often in the kind of the mode. Well, you know, I'm just not going to deal with it. I'm not going to deal with the actual issue. I'm just going to forgive them. Right. right? That's uh, sure. Yeah. But what I'm saying is the ideal that I would rather us or rather think about is like what would it actually mean to engage a person on such a level where you could actually talk about like the repentance that you need to do for them. Right. Like, I don't often think that that's on our radar. So that my pushback is not that you sh you still shouldn't forgive if they don't repent. I push it back as to say we should take it more seriously. Yeah, Joe. Um, I also really like what AJ said about kind of the completeness. It seems like, at least to me, that the repentance aspect kind of completes the circuit. It's there for our protection. I think that there are a lot of elements of this whole you wronged me, do I forgive you scenario where it can, how can you be certain that someone is really sorry unless they don't do it again, unless they come to you or you go to them, you confront them or they acknowledge it and then they don't do it again. But we do have to go back to the previous thing Jesus said, somebody might sin against you seven times in a day. Now most of the time that doesn't happen to us, but even then if they're if we if they have repentance in that moment yes of course they're but we're supposed to be the type of people that even if they sin that same way in the same day and come back to you sorry I, mean, I think there's a difference between like forgiving someone and also like recognizing okay well this person has like wronged me in the same way six times I'm gonna not put myself in the position to let them do it again yet still forgive them like I mean I think that there can be a distinction there, and I think someone can, it depends on like really your definition of repent too, because like if you say repent really means I will never do it again, well then no one's really repented like at all, you know, like people still sin, like, so none of us are repentant, and therefore none of us deserve forgiveness at all, you know, like so I think that I'm not sure really what line is repentance, how sorry you have to be, or like, I think that, yeah, there's some degree to which I, I, I totally agree with you that I, I don't know where that line is that struggle. Like, I'm just going to be a doormat and let this person, like, hurt me. Like, oh, oh you're, it's okay, I forgive you. Oh, and hurt me again. Like, oh, I forgive you. And, like, continue to do it. Like, seven times a day the same way. It seems like I'm not sure how that plays out. Um, I want to end. There's a couple things I want to say. But so Blumberg says this. So this is how do we apply this passage? It may work well with unbelievers, too, but its primary focus remains on believers. And genuine repentance, which includes changed behavior, must occur on the principles of verses 15 to 18 come into play instead. Um, I think that's a great statement. Just that idea of like, I think it hits on what Jeremy's point is. Most often we skip over repentance and pretend it doesn't exist and just expect a doormat type of forgiveness, which I don't think is right because very often when Jesus forgives sin, he, he well recognizes it, right? It's not just like a, eh, it was no big deal. It's like, no, 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 this was sin, but you, your sins are forgiven. You know, like there's this acknowledgement of wrong and, and restoration in, in the process. I just want to point out that I think Blomberg's right that repentance is changed behavior. Repentance is an action. It's not a feeling. Not a and it's not an emotion. It's not, I feel really, really sorry. Right, that's like guilt or something. Right. That might be guilt or, or regret. But repentance is actually when you turn around and go a different direction. So I think it's really important for us to not confuse those two because it also has theological implications of how we repent. And if we just think, I'm really, really sorry, but I refuse to change my behavior, then we aren't really repentant. We might just be regretting. Right. I think along the same lines, though, repentance still involves, or like that can be a very long process. Like just because 
in other words, I, I think that's where the seven times seventy-seven or seventy-seven times comes back into play. Where it's not the fact that somebody keeps coming back to you, treating you like a doormat, but that it takes a it takes a while sometimes for that kind of repentance to occur. Like someone could be on that path, they could be on that journey, and you might not see it right away. And so I, I think that's where. It's not really an issue of so much of a doormat, but more of an issue of like to be encouraging and uplifting and to be in relationship with the people around you who it might take a while for that to happen and to, to be forgiving and to be kind. So it's, you know, yeah, it's more than just an emotion. It's an attitude. It's perspective. It's understanding that this could be a long thing, um, but to take it seriously. Yeah, I think we've said a lot of good things. I mean, I just we're we're gonna kind of move to the parable because this parable is gonna illustrate this. So there's gonna be lots of further stuff on this. Um, one of the things that I was thinking about is just the weight of that idea that Jesus really tells like there's no limit, and and so easy we just wash over it or oh Jesus wants us to be forgiving, which is true. Um, but it's it's very. I mean, this is the center of our gospel. This idea of this unlimited forgiveness that we see modeled in Christ, and that's supposed to be modeled in us. Um, it's very powerful, and it's very hard because there have been probably all of us who have said here. There have been certain people who have really wronged us. Um, you know, and and where do you find the source of forgiveness, and and how what what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? Um, and so we're going to see in this parable, we're going to see Jesus illustrate. And so there are three essential episodes to it. So we'll look at each of them and kind of discuss them along. So therefore, verses 23 to 27. So therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Just one of the things to put the parable in perspective in the, the money-wise. So this talent, right? The talent's the highest denomination in Rome, okay? And 10,000 is the highest number for which Greek had a particular word for. Okay, so Jesus kind of combines these two together, the 10,000 talents. Rough estimates, a talent equals a denarius times 6,000 to 10,000, meaning <laughs> this 10,000 talents was unsurmountable, right? You have like 60 million to 100 million denarii, Okay. And a denarius is one day's wage. Okay, so just to put that in perspective, this first servant has no ability ever to ever pay this. It's not even possible. And some scholars, this is such a high number, some scholars even question like if the disciples could conceive of this number. Because <laughs> there probably wasn't enough wealth in all of Rome. You know, so that's, that's the type of thing. And he makes that clear. Okay, he chooses a very large number. Um, so when this master is going to send out, you know, okay, sell his wife and his children into slavery. He's not looking to get the whole debt repaid because he can't. But he's trying to get something back, right? I mean, this seems to be that, well, you owe me too much, but I'll take your car and your house and everything you have because that's all you have and we'll, we'll make this easy, right? And it's the servant falling on his knees, begging, which, which seems to be in the parable, this idea of repentance, this acknowledgement of, and, and even says, I'll pay back everything later, which, of course, as we know, it's going to be a plea that's not possible to fulfill the master realizes this and cancels that debt. So we see this act of sheer grace, right? There's nothing short of it. Phil, did you have... Is the begging for forgiveness equated with repentance? Especially with John's definition of repentance, this idea of pulling the other 
person in front of the screen that's being changed back shape. That, that's not repentance, that's just like someone trying to get out of consequences. They, they might change because of it, but... Okay, Joe? Right, and I think the point of the parable is that he's not repentant because he turns right around and is clearly not changed at all by this interaction and nails the next guy. Right, which is why the, the parable is so jarring in the end, of course. Yeah. So he's not repentant and then his forgiveness is taken away. Yeah. It's interesting to hear people say, no, actually, I don't even buy that he's repenting. I mean, clearly we see in the end he doesn't make the connection. So I'd say in the end he doesn't. Um, I think he's actually, like Jeremy had said, sometimes, and I, I wholeheartedly believe, repentance in many cases is a process. You know, and there, there are times where you ask for forgiveness. There are times when you acknowledge wrong behavior and, and you're attempting to do differently, and yet you're not. And yet you're, you're stuck not doing. Now, this, this guy, I mean, it's, a, it's another situation. Like, I don't take his side too much, but I actually do think he's attempting to repent, but then the irony and, and the destruction, I mean, it's pretty amazing, yeah. I think we're starting to mix up the concepts. He doesn't ask for forgiveness. He actually says he's going to pay everything back. What he asks for is mercy. And the master responds by giving him more than mercy. He gives him grace and forgives the whole debt. Right? And that's why I think when he goes forward, it's even more egregious. Because he's not actually trying to collect and pay back. He doesn't have to pay it back. He's actually showing that asking for mercy, receiving even more, he's going to go forward and actually give it to the next guy, right. totally ignoring that he's just been let out of this preposterous amount of debt. Yeah, let's just jump to the next episode as well. we'll we, we can always go back and forth, but yeah, because it is exactly, it's, it's egregious what he does. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. So this is 100 days pay, okay? That actually is payable. I mean, yeah, he's going to need to do a payment plan. He's going to need to work harder, but this could actually be paid back. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And his fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. Commentators point out the words are almost the same, what the two servants say. So the irony is just building. But he refused. Instead he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. So it's so egregious that these other servants, somehow they've, maybe they've gotten word uh, you know, that, that the first servant was forgiven for so much, you know, that debt paid off. And yet he does this. I mean, the servants are freaking out, you know, and they tell the master. I mean, that's how egregious is it. It's a pretty amazing situation. And it seems like he's just being conniving, unforgiving, foolish. He doesn't even understand. You know, he certainly, yeah, he's showing that he doesn't have a repentant heart. He doesn't want to do what the master has done for him. Yeah. I think repentance would have been a change in spirit because if you look at this, it's He's brutalizing this other guy. He's grabbing and choking somebody, demanding and yeah. throwing them in prison. The master didn't do any of that to him. He's like, oh, look, I'm going to settle my accounts. Let me bring this other guy before me and talk to him. So it's like a formal process versus this guy running up after he's been forgiven all this debt and just like, hey, this guy owes me money. It's like he's totally separate from that other process. Plus, how would you rack up debt like that? Like a gambler or something. Yeah, and I mean, and, and that's part of the parable. Like, I don't even think it's that type of wealth wasn't even in Rome. And I think Jesus is totally, like, that's where you take this example, you take a story and blow it out of proportion. <laughs> you know, so I mean, it's not even, uh, yeah, it's not even possible to even accumulate that type of debt. But I think it's trying to, I mean, when we take this parable to ourselves, which we're going to do in a bit, but kind of that idea of, it's trying to illustrate the insurmountable debt that we have against God, right? There's no way we can pay it off. Yeah. 
I think in, in a huge contrast to this parable is the story of Zacchaeus, who was forgiven quite a bit, and in response to that, not only went to repay, but repaid more than four times over. Um, and so he was, I think he's the example of what this person should have done, perhaps. Yeah, that's a great connection. Um, let's do the last scene as well. So. So the servants tell the master, then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had, the, had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortur tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. How do we understand Jesus' final statement here? Because that's kind of like a pronouncement. That bottom line is not part of the parable. That's how Jesus connects the parable to Peter's question. So the master takes back his forgiveness, as Jill already mentioned. Yeah. Can we go to the statement before the last one? In his anger, the master turned him over the jails to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. So if in the parable it's impossible for him to pay back all he owes, it's just impossible according to what you said, he's going to be tortured Right. For the rest it's of a statement. Yep. Okay. So do you interpret that as a like a judgment, like hell type of passage? Is that one of Jesus' well, allusions to? Yeah, I would say, yeah, I think this ties back to Matthew 6, 12. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors as we pray. If you forgive men sin when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Like we've seen this before in Matthew. I think... I mean, this is what we really need to wrestle with. How do we understand these statements? Because so, this isn't the only one, is my point here. This has been said a couple times by Jesus when he teaches on forgiveness is, hey, if you do not forgive others, especially, I mean, I, I still think there's a primary effort uh, with those who repent, um, with those who are actually coming to you repenting and you not forgiving, how can you possibly expect your sins to be forgiven? This is tough because, like I said, I believe these statements are at the center of the gospel and the center of what does it mean to really be a disciple. I mean, there are many people who claim to be disciples, and some of them don't live it. And, and this seems to be one of those dividing lines like, hey, if you are unforgiving to those, especially when they're repentant, like how can you possibly have understood God's forgiveness? How is it even possible? I mean, is our forgiveness from God dependent on our forgiveness to others? I mean, that's, that's kind of the question that seems to be raised. Forgiveness is very central. As far as our discipleship, and, and there, I'm assuming that there are people in this room with, with some sort of, you know, relational tensions with others where, where either there's sin on your part or sin on their part. I mean, they're, they're, none of us have perfect relationships, right? I mean, we might have some that are very healthy, but many of them are not. And, and many of us harbor resentment or anger or unforgiveness towards others, you know? And so what, <laughs> what do we do with that? Because these are very strong statements. Uh, yeah, Phil. I don't really know, but I, I think it's difficult, or at least very challenging to say that our forgiveness from God is dependent on our forgiveness of other people, even though it seems to be like, you know, like what Matthew 6 is saying, what this passage is saying. Like, I think it's difficult for multiple reasons, like one of which is even just the idea of like time, and there's multiple times where I might or might not forgive someone. And does that mean like if there's a point in my life where I don't forgive someone, then like, sorry, you're in hell for the rest of eternity because that doesn't work out. 
or is it like the last time, or because I held, if I held on to something at the end of my life, or is it because like, I just live a general life of like not being repentant or like, not forgiving? And then I think it really like that's a struggle. Like, what does forgiving really mean? Because I feel like we have different definitions of it. Um, of you know, like John was saying, like this idea of releasing the per or like saying yes, I'll give you more time for this debt, as opposed to no, I'll forgive you from the debt and it's gone. Like, or even like um, the person Joe brought up, like this difference of okay, well no, like I forgive you, don't worry about it. Like you wronged me, but like I forgive you completely. I said no, like I forgive you, but you did wrong me, and you should make reparations for it. Like that. I'm not sure if, if one is better or more right than the other, but like those are different. And therefore, if we're doing one and not the other, does that mean, well, sorry, it's not good enough forgiveness, so you're going to hell. And so I think like, it just creates a lot of problems with this, and that doesn't mean I don't think it's true, I just don't understand it. Yeah. I'm also kind of going along with the filthy. The, the, the trouble, the thing that I'm having trouble discerning is between, um, like, if there's certain things that I can forgive more easily, I, I know everything's not going to be the same level of all, oh, that's sure. easy to forgive, you know, that's a little harder. So my, my question and my concern is that, if, you know, if I'm quick to, you know, forgive those things, yeah, okay, the easy things are easy to forgive, I'm a somewhat forgiving person. But then something bigger comes along, it's harder for me to forgive that, you know, from what I'm reading, I will be judged equally, you know, it would be harder for God to forgive me for the bigger things I've done wrong, you know, and so I think the tough part is that, is that, like Phil was saying, there's some things that require more time to forgive, there's some things that, is, that are a lot harder to forgive on certain days than there are on others, so I don't know, I think the, the trouble I'm having is, you know, I know forgiving means everything, big, small, but I think it's tough to be able to forgive those big things too, and know that God's going to judge you equally for that. I think there's a there's a intentionality in his in this parable and the lack of his forgiveness. Like, I agree with Philip that it would be hard to see God, even though I take him at his word as what he says here. I it's hard to believe that then there's like a new definition of our salvation. forgiveness and salvation. Like we've now added a modifier, which is, oh yeah, and you had to remember to have forgiven everybody. I think in this parable, the ridiculousness is not just the amount of money that he owed that was forgiven. It was how little money the other guy owed him. <laughs> and he refused to, so it's not, I mean, yes, he was forgiven of a huge amount. But he turned around and immediately demanded the smallest amount and violently tried to take it and refused to give the same mercy he was given. It's actually not even the same mercy. He was given a huge amount. He refused to give a little amount. And I think what that points to is he just didn't understand the very thing that saved him. I think that's really what's going on in a parable like this where Jesus is saying, like, if you're going to be forgiven of the debt of sin, which is death, if you're going to be let off the hook from the death penalty, and you're gonna to refuse to forgive someone for a small thing they've done against you and you're gonna hold a grudge and even violently go after them for it, you haven't even appreciated what is saving you. You don't understand it. You haven't really even believed in it, I think would be a way to resolve this in a way that stays consistent with the other passages Jesus gives about it. It's like, if you can't release that and let it go, then you really don't understand what, what this grace that I've given you is all about. Yeah. Uh... Like if we're going to analyze the extremes of the parable, right, uh, insurmountable amount of money, like, there's a lot of, it's, it's a parable. So in some sense, I think we have to be careful, right, about drawing out, like, literal theological truths out of parables. Like, this is not a parable, I think, about hell. I think that the, 
the extremes are given to remind us uh, to kind of set up the boundaries for how we are really supposed to work with each other. Not that I forgive because I'm afraid that I might lose my faith or that I might burn in hell because somewhere along the line I didn't forget. Like that, that's, I think, not our concern, right? This is not a salvation issue. Like, so I think that like the extremes kind of set up the, the boundaries for how we then really should be uh, working with and communicating with and experiencing life, uh, a life of repentance and forgiveness with one another. John? I think that Jeremy's right that we can't take too much out of parables, but we have to ask two things. One is, why did he tell the parable? And it's clear that he's responding to Peter's issues about forgiveness. And the parable is centrally about, if God has forgiven you of this much, then how can you not forgive someone of a small thing? That's actually the point of the parable. But the more important point is that Morgan's question is dead on because the line that's on the screen right now is not part of the parable. Jesus often editorialized his own parables. He would often say, this is how it will be at the end of a parable, and it's not part of the parable. So if he tells a parable and then steps out of the parable and says, this is how it will be, then he's now saying that I've told you this parable for a reason, and here's the reason. And he's, it's not like something that we could say, well, how do we interpret that? He's actually telling us in his own editorial that if you understand this parable, I'm making this, because he starts it off by saying the kingdom of heaven will be like this, and then he's going to end it with the other bookend, which is this is how it's going to be for you, and we're no longer in parable land anymore. Now he's actually making a strong statement about what the kingdom is going to be like. I'd like to say also on, on the debt that the, the servant doesn't forgive, like, I don't want to say it's really small. I mean, 100 days away, I mean, that's a third of the year's pay, you know, so it's significant. It's foolish in compared to the previous. I mean, it's utterly unbelievable that he could do such a thing. Because AJ's hit on the fact, okay, we, most of us in this, all of us, I'm, I'll be willing to say, I think all of us in this world, we're pretty, we can forgive the easy stuff, right? I mean, that's why we'd say it's easy, <laughs> you know? But, but what happens when, it's, when it is a serious offense? What, what happens when it is somewhat substantial, you know? I mean, and even in my opinion, the way I look at this parable, I look at this and say, even in those circumstances, if I remember my debt before God, it then makes this utterly, you know, in comparison to that, it's utterly small and foolish to think that I couldn't forgive. You know, I mean, that's, that's why I think this does, it, it needs to be relevant, not just for, you know, somebody says one mean thing and repents, like, okay, you know, whatever. It, I think it needs to have some weight in substantial things as well. Bill? Um, my problem with it is, though, that chronologically, like, um, the master, like, which I'm assuming will say, yes, this is God, forgives and says, you have no debt. Like, you owe me nothing. The problem is, I think that that might seem like a minor issue, but when it comes down to it, that's really the question of what we're struggling with here is like, well, has God actually forgiven me right now? Am I forgiven? Or is that something that he can take away if I don't act right? That's a struggle, at least. I'm not sure how that plays out. Because in the parable, it seems like this master basically says, no, you're clear. And you don't owe me anything. Like, makes that clear and then makes him go to prison and pay off the debt that he no longer owes. And that's why many people look at this and say, that servant, and we even said this, like, he didn't get it at all. Like, Joe pointed out that he was not repentant to the point that one questions if he ever understood it. Some of the things Jeremy is saying is also true where, okay, there are boundaries in parables. Yet, this is also telling us... <laughs> 
Some of us may think we have this great forgiveness from God, right? That, you know, I, I pray to the Lord every night and I, and I get my sins forgiven and I go out and forgive no one. <laughs> and, and the big warning sign is like, uh, maybe you don't. Maybe, you're, maybe you don't have a clue what actually receiving God's forgiveness. And maybe you don't even have a relationship with God. I mean, maybe you've been fooling yourself because you are taking something so simple, so basic, so, so much at the heart of the gospel and applying it to absolutely no one. You know what I mean? That should be some of the jarring thing. Like, wait a minute. Why can I never forgive anyone? Do I even understand? You know, those are the questions they should prompt us. We should see ourselves as that first servant. Am I somebody who prays every night for forgiveness and gives it to no one? And what does that mean for real faith? Yeah. I think going along with that, kind of the most surfacey thing I can take from this is that to me, the forgiveness aspect is not necessarily a deal breaker of our faith where if we do it, we're good, but if we don't, we're automatically in the bad camp. I think, to me, what we're saying here is that the forgiveness is an indicator of our faith. So this is, in effect, saying to me, you will know you have the faith, you will know you are you're saved when this is a key aspect of your life, you are, when you're yeah. forgiving people. And if you're not, it's something you need to examine. I don't think it means you're automatically, oh, I didn't forgive this person, so I'm a bad egg. Yeah, Jason? Um, I think one of the things about this is like God is all about reconciliation and all of, all of what we've been reading about is God reconciling himself with the individual but then he's concerned then after that with re reconciliation among the different people so um, watch out that you're not sinning against your or leading someone else to sin or that you're sinning against some, someone else or that you're not seeking forgiveness if you're not about reconciliation, then you're not about what God is about. And so either you need to be seeking after that part of God, or you're not you're not seeking what God wants. And so I think that that, I mean, it's not like you're going to hell if you're not seeking what God wants, but in a, in a sense, like, we're seeking what God is all about, which is reconcil reconciling himself to us and us to each other, then what part do we have with God? Monique? Like maybe it's not that you have to be perfect and be able to forgive everything, but maybe if you're pursuing it, that shows the type of heart that like you have for God and maybe you're praying about it and, and you're confessing it to God all the time and I want to forgive and this is difficult to help me and you're taking steps to constantly move towards that as opposed to being like, no, it's not important, I don't care. Like you don't deserve it, you're not entitled to my forgiveness. Do you know what I mean? Like maybe just at least always moving towards that, even if you can't achieve it, but like you're really seeking to do that with everything in you. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was kind of also, um, I think also including God in the forgiveness process and and, um, and, and praying, because there's some things like those big things, like except for me, like going through something currently, it's hard for me to begin, okay, well, I want this thing to be reconciled, but we're not at the place yet. So I just keep praying and, and doing all that. I just keep praying, okay, well, letting God know it's all my want. I'm trying to have a heart to forgive this, but currently it's still tough. But as, as long as I keep praying about it, and slowly and slowly I feel my heart moving. But um, I think that, that that's kind of the thing that we fail to include God in. And I think he wants to be included on that. I think he wants to be, yeah, like I said. Well, I think he has to be the source of it. I think that's what, what one of the things that, to me, this parable illuminates. God's deep forgiveness in our life because we have a gospel that says, now, God forbid we would do this, is if we were to murder somebody but actually have repentance and actually come back, like, that's not too big a sin. 
right? I mean, we believe, I mean, David, Paul, these people actually killed others. You know, the things that we sit here and say, I hope none of us ever do. But this parable does reveal this audacious nature of, of, of Christ's forgiveness. There isn't too great a sin other than in Scripture or whatever exactly it means to sin against the Holy Spirit, right? That's the only thing in the Scriptures that says this is not going to be forgiven. And we, that's a difficult one to figure out exactly. But otherwise, God's forgiveness is for all things and all people with repentant hearts. So, of course, our source has to be God and the understanding of the deep forgiveness we have been, received. And the, the forgiveness that we don't know about that we will see, receive in the future. Because somebody in here might kill someone or they might do something awful. And God is still gracious enough to forgive and restore and take that person back in somehow, some way. <laughs> in a way that maybe we have a hard time understanding. Jeremy, did you have something? I don't think Phil's question actually has been answered. Or his point is, was still disturbing enough uh, in that like, you still have the picture of, of a master who, in the NRSV it says, forgave sin, forgave the debt, and then turned around and within the context of the parable took that forgiveness back, right? And then so the parable ends, right? And I think why Phil's question is so disturbing is, like, given how John has pointed out this is not a part of the parable, he seems to extract out of it, you know, in the same way you'll be treated. You'd like, in other words, it'd be nice if the parables kind of ended there, right? And we could, we could understand that that was just a parable, but then, like, it seems that that kind of disturbing element is then pulled out of it again, and I don't, I don't think that that's still been addressed. And I, so that's why Matthew <laughs> six is so important too that you put it up on the screen because that's not a parable. He's actually in the midst of the Lord's prayer, and it's one of the only lines in the Lord's prayer that he double emphasizes by coming back after finishing the Lord's prayer and then saying, "Let's remember this one line once again," and this is why it's in there. So, it's it's not in a parable, and we're having trouble with it. I think that just like we don't gouge out our eyes and we don't cut off our hands, we recognize that as Jesus using hyperbole. These are a different genre, what we would call warning passages. And, the, and there's people who interpret warning passages differently. Some people actually take them literally. But most people would take a mediating position and say a warning passage is meant to cause us to check ourselves and never feel too secure and never feel comfortable. The other thing I'd add in terms of Phil's comment about, well, there's some things I've forgiven easily and there will be some things that are hard. This parable is about somebody who did not forgive. It may not be as easy as I made it out to be, but it's a refusal to forgive. Not like I didn't get to that or it's really hard for me or I'm trying. We're trying to read into it our own lives. This parable is about somebody who was forgiven the greatest thing ever and then refused and violently took on somebody else and went after them. And when he's talking about this is how it will be, I think he's pointing exactly to that parable. So I think for us to start reading into it like, well, can God retake his forgiveness back? Or, or what if I forgot somebody? Like, that's reading too much of the parable. He's told us a clear example of somebody who has forgiven the greatest thing ever, the greatest amount ever known, and then just showed his hard-heartedness, his just complete not-gettedness, whatever you want to call it, and just refused to even consider it. I think that's what we have to kind of stay within that parameter. Uh, and not read into too much like every kind of circumstance we can imagine and then see if we can read that into the parable. It won't work. The parable has one point, basically, in that juxtaposition. Yeah. Um, let me put up a couple. I thought these were helpful. One of our commentators, so from Word Biblical. So disciples are the forgiven who forgive. And as God's forgiveness is inexhaustible, so too must disciples cultivate their ability to renew their forgiveness to others again and again. 
As God freely forgives those who have sinned against him, so are the disciples to freely forgive those who sin against them. In both instances, the repentance of the sinner is assumed. The failure to forgive one who is repentant casts doubt upon the genuineness of the person's discipleship. I think those are great statements. I have a couple thoughts for us. Um, and those are, there are a couple. I mean, one, I know we only highlight it very briefly, but to go back to those verses 15 through 18, um, and are there fellow believers who have sinned against you that you have not spoken with? Um, I believe you need to engage that person because they may not know their sin against you, or if they do, they may be avoiding it because we've highlighted this idea many times. We just sweep things under. Um, and I believe that is really giving someone else the opportunity to repent. I know that can be hard. It's very difficult to confront uh, sin or, or to, to even let someone know, like, hey, that actually did matter. I'm done sweeping that under the ground. You know, like, I think we missed, like Jeremy said, so often we just skip over and pretend like things never went wrong. That ability of really doing that in humility and doing that in love, but, you know, confronting someone. Because we need to take those verses seriously, too. That, that there's a certain process when you are sinned against, when you are grieved. That there's something that you do and we can't be people pleasers and we can't, you know, run away from those things. And the second is, has a fellow believer repented and asked forgiveness of you, but you refuse to forgive them in return? And if so, you need to bring that before God and immediately work towards forgiving that person in light of God's inexhaustible forgiveness towards you. I do, I think Jeremy said, I mean, that process, it is a process. It's not easy. Um, but, but that's where the source of God comes in for understanding our own forgiveness and being people, that forgiven community that Hogner spoke about. Um, let us pray, and then we'll worship. Um, God, we thank you for these words to us, to the disciples, to all people in all places. Um, God, we are not ashamed of your gospel, because um, it is the power for the, to everyone who believes. God, is for salvation, and we thank you. Um, God, we pray, I pray over us that we would be people who deeply forgive. God, that we would never check out.